1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very interested today um, to be interviewing an author who's written a really interesting book that intersects uh, a lot of different kinds of thinking in a way, um, and also sort of takes us behind the scenes of a bit of history that maybe a lot of us think we know a lot about. Um, But this book really reveals kind of a whole extra layer or maybe an extra few layers um, behind a a series of campaigns in World War II. So I'm very pleased to welcome David Dwarak to the podcast to talk about his book titled War of Supply, World War II Allied Logistics in the Mediterranean, published by University Press of Kentucky in this wonderful year of 2022. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast um, to talk about your book.
1: Well, thank you, Miranda. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you today.
2: Could you start off by introducing yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Dave Dwarak. Uh I've got a little bit of an interesting background. So uh, uh, Army officer in the United States Army for 30 years, uh, career logistician. I started off as a quartermaster officer. And then uh, once I progressed along, we we in the Army turned into what we call multifunctional logisticians. We are working with not just supply, but other elements of logistics, such as ordnance and and transportation. And uh, so I did that for for quite a few number of years. And uh, toward the end of my career, I came up to the Army War College, where I became a one of our faculty here on on staff. And as as uh, as part of that, uh, I became a historian as well too. Uh, got a doctorate in history. And so I have this convergence of of interests of military history of of uh, logistics, of uh, strategy. Uh, I've taught classes in operational planning and campaigning and operational art. And one of the things that I noticed, and it was really discouraging, is when you look at the the literature out there, there's really a tremendous lack of quality literature that deals with supporting military operations. So we, we have an adage, uh, Omar Bradley is often attributed to this, although I could never find the exact citation for it. But you know, something that we talk here at the War College, and I've heard it throughout my career, is that Amateurs talk about strategy, while professionals talk about logistics. But when you when you look at the literature, that really doesn't seem to follow through because there's very few books on it. And even here, uh, at, at teaching at the War College, I found that even with our, our within our curriculum, logistics is very uh, slightly dealt with. There isn't a lot to it. So it comes down to th- this. Was I think uh, an area of opportunity that we had uh, to not only look at, uh, lit- you know, what could we do for Uh, you know, adding to the body of knowledge on logistics, but also taking a look at a campaign that really hasn't been covered in detail that's of the Mediterranean during the Second World War. So, you know, I think it uh, was a personal interest plus uh, an opportunity I saw in in the career field adding on to what we were doing here at the college. And that's kind of what drove me toward this topic.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And it does seem like, first, that is a phrase I think a lot of us um, in and around military research have heard a lot, um, talking about logistics. And yet, and and the questions that you ask in the beginning of the book are really fundamental and apply in pretty much any battlefield situation, and yet are not talked about, right? So you talk about in the book, quote, how did combatants arrive on the battlefield? How did they get the fuel, munitions, food, repair parts, clothing, water and equipment needed to engage in great power conflict? Um, In a lot of ways, those are sort of obvious questions. And it is odd that there is so little literature that kind of investigates that. So I, I think that that, Um, framing is a really important contribution. Um, And I wanted to ask a little bit more kind of about the choice of campaign, right? This focuses on the Mediterranean and World War II. Um, What made you decide kind of looking at the gaps in the literature around logistics that World War II particularly and this campaign within that was going to be your focus?
1: Yeah, I think it started in 2006. So I was on a uh, military staff ride and we went to Sicily. So as part of the Sicilian this, this staff ride, you know, we are looking at the campaign in the Mediterranean and how it developed. And, and, and I really developed a true appreciation for uh, an element of World War II that very few people, uh, either they can't even write it off or they just don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. They really, you know, just Google uh, World War II and you'll get plenty in the Pacific, you get plenty uh, in Northwest Europe, very little in the Mediterranean. But when you think about it, this is what I realized walking over the beaches of uh, of Sicily and, and driving through the, the island is that this is the context for the, the whole European theater begins here in the Mediterranean. And it's you know, it's in late late 42 when things develop. D-Day, of course, isn't, you know, until later on in the war, 18 months later. But when we look at Northwest Europe and, and D-Day and the invasion of France, all all of the lessons that are learned, the context for it. Uh, The formations that are coming over the beaches for the Allies all have their birth in the Mediterranean, Uh, as well as you look at the leadership. So look at Eisenhower, uh, Montgomery, Patton, you know, all all the famous captains that we talked about of of war that come out of that that theater uh, fighting in in France. You know, they uh, largely got their their battlefield experience there in the Mediterranean. So to understand the the fight in Europe and the European theater, you really have to understand the Mediterranean and how the Mediterranean gave birth to a, an approach to fighting that was really new for the Allies, especially the Americans. But I, I would argue that many of the combatants, both on the Axis and the Allied side, were, were largely new to this type of warfare. So it's all about learning, setting conditions, and this is what uh, allows us to actually execute D-Day in the way that we did you know, 18 months later. Now, the other aspect of it, why I chose the Mediterranean, is it's all entirely relatable to today's operations. So you think about what's been going on for the last 20 years with the war on terror and you look at, uh, especially the U S army, but I think all, all the commands have been deploying over, we're going into an established theater. We have a very good port structure. Uh, there's forces there to receive you when you get there. So the, a lot of the hard work has already been done. You don't really have to think about it much, but what was happening, in, in North Africa though, in 1942 is entirely different. And it's a, a scene that could be very well played out today where you have a short amount of planning time. You have to take a, a combined and joint force by combined, I mean, multinational joint, of course, of all our different services, air, sea and land, of course now include space and cyber and all of that. But how do you take that, that and build it now into a cohesive force, come up with a, a plan of operations that is supportable and then deploy it to an austere theater where you maybe not have, you don't have all the port capacity that you're looking for you certainly probably don't have the uh, road and rail networks that you want you know maybe the supporting infrastructure especially of networks is is there is not there so it, all that has to be built before you can effectively establish a theater of operations so all all that together kind of focused me on i think the, the Mediterranean is worth worth studying even today
2: Wonderful. Um, Thank you for explaining that. And I think that does come through really clearly in the book, the sort of progression of learning, the learning curve, as you will, and then, of course, the implications later on. Um, So I'd love to kind of do a bit of a chronological tour through this process of learning in the Mediterranean, and then towards the end, uh, talk a little bit about kind of what this later enabled, both in World War II and perhaps a bit beyond. Um, So let's start off in 1942, Um, you've given us a kind of brief idea of what the problem was to be solved, right? A lot of different um, types of forces from different countries, all trying to sort of coordinate and do the same thing. Um, But can you kind of flesh that out a little bit more? Why was um, the situation in North Africa around support in particular kind of such a struggle, um, not just for the Allies, but for um, the Axis as well in 1942?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think both sides are, Uh, dealing with essentially the same problem, which is really, really interesting to see then how they uh, deal with it. So uh, neither side knew the access, well, it was especially Germany. Uh, Germany uh, was not planning on fighting in North Africa. You know, Mussolini goes in, uh, doesn't even tell Hitler that he's he's going into it. It's only after the Italians get in trouble that the Germans have to come in and bail them out. But now you're talking about, so here's a uh, a campaign uh, theater, if you will, that neither side has really been planning on for any length of time. The Americans, of course, the British have been in there for quite a while in Egypt, and that's all part of the empire. For the Americans is a brand new theater. Expeditionary logistics or support is, is new to the Americans as well, too. Uh, and it's to the Germans uh, as well. So as, as the Germans uh, fl- flow uh, Rommel and uh, his divisions into North Africa to assist the, the Italian effort, uh, we have now is really interesting contract in, in a single problem uh, a problem faced by both adversaries. So for the Germans, I think we'd take a look at them first. So Germany is largely a continental power when you look at their history. Uh, very strong, tremendous number of resources, large numbers of personnel. Don't have a lot of uh, access to seaports. You know, that's all a part of the challenge they have. But you look at how they, they fight, uh, and this goes back to Germany a little bit. They often have interior lines of communication and they have great reliance on their rail network uh, to move their forces and their sustainment around. And that by relying on their rail network, they also rely heavily on their civilians. So you don't have a lot of military infrastructure or doctrine that has to have been built uh, before the Second World War for Germany to support these type of uh, long distance operations away away from your your home base. Uh, Still, again, additionally, much of the German army during the Second World War is still horse-drawn. Now, a lot of that will be left behind. They're going to take a lot of mechanized forces to Germany, but the overall force structure is still such that, you know, you don't have a lot to, to work with, especially on the doctrine side. So, so and for Germany, uh, the other aspect of this is Africa is a bit of a sideshow. It's, uh, it's Rommel's mission when he's down there is essentially not to lose. We're just trying to keep the Italians out of trouble and not create a, a bigger nightmare than it is. But Rommel being the... the Kind of character that he is. The and when you, th- you just think of the term Rommel, what comes to your mind? As someone who's very aggressive, who's bold, who's out there in front. Certainly, that's a reputation he, he rightfully earned during the First World War as a division commander. But, but he's uh, not the kind of guy to go on the defense and just uh, sit back and see what comes. So he takes the the offense and he's very aggressive, and he begins seeing victories, uh, which is. Uh, helpful for Hitler because Hitler at the same time on the Eastern front has not seen much success. In fact, it's going the other way. So Hitler is in, in uh, the German high command is encouraging Rommel to do whatever he can. Hitler needs the, the good news uh, there at home to keep popular will up. But we end up with the Germans. There is an interesting situation where there's a mismatch or a mismatch between the ends ways and means of the, of the German strategy. When it comes to North Africa, it's largely supposed to be a defensive theater with just limited sustainment. And what you find now is it's going, Rommel's going in the offense, which takes tremendous amounts of supplies, especially fuel and ammunition. So, and you combine that now with, uh, it's not a priority theater. The Italians largely are supposed to be providing sustainment and uh, you don't have a, a very effective distribution network. And that's kind of what the Germans are having to wrestle with. Now you flip that over and you look at the allies, so the Allies have a little bit uh, of a different situation where they haven't been relying on rail largely because the Americans always, you know, if we fight the away game. So we're largely deploying to different uh, theaters, if you will. But our own experience in the First World War is different because when we show up for uh, the First World War in France, again, the theater has already been set. So we don't have to do a lot of that themselves. So this is all new to us. So the Allies is in uh, late 42, we have a decision between Churchill and Roosevelt, we're going into North Africa. It's Operation Torch. Very limited time, just a few months to plan this operation. So the Allies now are going to be coming out of multiple seaports of invocation. Uh, you have to cross sea lines of communication that are threatened. They're certainly not secure or safe. And uh, we also have an, an interesting challenge uh, for, the, for the Americans, especially. Where they had been sending a lot of supplies into England beforehand, thinking they were going to do a cross-channel assault. We changed the objective in North Africa, and we find that because of a a lack of doctrine, a lack of experience, a lack of units, much of the material that's been sent into England for the U.S. is now uh, can't be located. We know it arrived, but because of lack of uh, supply awareness, we're really not sure where it all went. So it's really hard now to try to get it all back together to effectively load ships. So we have to write off a lot of that, refill those stores, those stocks from U.S. depots, and now mail, in many cases, that same material, whether it's ammunition or fuel, repair parts, whatever it might be, food is now coming out of US ports at the same time that the British are being sailing out of uh, England, English ports. So they're crossing this unsecured line of communications. And what you find now is again, unexperienced leadership, especially on the American side, not so much on the British side, but it's, it's really combined with, uh, for the American army. Now we have a lack of Navy escorts. So even though we want to ship quite a bit of material now from the U S into the Mediterranean and we have the shipping to do it, that's not the problem. But the Navy comes back and says, well, unfortunately we only have so many Navy escorts to protect the, the merchant convoys. So you're going to be limited in the number of ships you can bring. So that now throws a monkey wrench into the American planning. They have to go back, recreate their logistic support plans, which interestingly are being created separately from the campaign plans, the operational plans. So we have the operators in, in one location doing operational planning. The logisticians are not connected with that. They're in a different location doing sustainment planning. And it's it's really a disconnect between those two systems. So it's uh, this combination of uh, lack of strategic resources, uh, lack of shipping now that's gonna impact and, and really drive what can be sent to the Mediterranean as they embark on this uh, this invasion.
2: That's rather a lot of different disconnects. (laughs) So, I can definitely. Yeah, so that's definitely makes it clear, kind of, why this is such a challenge on so many different levels, um, just kind of as a starting point. Um, And you then kind of bring this forward, uh, because obviously, just because it was challenging, they they managed to get some amount of supply and people and coordination sorted, um, enough that there were then some key operations that you take us through in the book. Um, and I'd kind of like to start with the first one, Operation Torch. Um, what were kind of in this very first attempt of kind of coordinating to do something um, in this situation, what were some of the key problems and sort of areas for improvement that were identified uh, from this operation?
1: Yeah, you know, perhaps one, one of the biggest areas of learning uh, that happened, especially for the Americans, is the importance of logistic support and the role that it plays in the overall campaign and and how you, as I mentioned just a second ago, how you incorporate and synchronize your planning efforts and the time that it takes for that. So there's just a lack of, I think, of awareness uh, on the U.S. side of how much time it takes to effectively create a campaign plan, to synchronize it, and then put the the pieces in place uh, to start bringing stocks forward because... However many, you're, let's say you're, you're bringing 50,000 uh, troops in, you have to do the calculations. All right, so how much fuel, what do they need? How much fuel do they need? What types of munitions? What types of repair parts? What ports are they going into? If they, uh, if ideally the material has already been produced, now you have to get it out of the factories and the warehouses and the depots and get it to the right ports so you can lo- get loaded on the ships. And it all has to be landed at the right time. Uh, so it, ideally, the right people have the right stuff at the right time at the right location. That, that's really challenging to do. and you know, our experience in the First World War, well, the American Expeditionary Force almost failed in World War I because of how we treated logistics. It was a secondary effort. So what we have to do is, you know, it's one of the first problems is come over this this cultural approach that the US has of the the logisticians aren't second class citizens and you don't just put all of your first class people up there in the front. You really have to understand how the, the two elements are all linked. So it's understanding what that role is uh, combined with now, the U.S. has is, is never really been in charge of establishing a, a large theater of combat in, in a, in a remote, remote location in a, a joint and combined nature. So this is, we don't have a lot of doctrine uh, that uh, deals with the beginning of the war. Certainly don't have a lot of experience. We don't have the right equipment to do with as well, too. So we have to work through all of that here through Operation Torch. So Operation Torch is, actually, we get really lucky if the, the Free French... Uh, hadn't uh, decided to capitulate when they did and and fought a firmer fight Uh, or if the Spanish and Morocco had decided to take a little bit different approach or if the Strait of Gibraltar had all been closed, it could have been a very, very different thing. You know, as I in the book, the landings on the Atlantic side, normally the landings in Atlantic are problematic because the Atlantic is really, really rough with high sea states and can make amphibious assaults really challenging. Well, that, that, the day the invasion for Torch, the, the Atlantic was described almost like a lake. The, the water was just flat calm. And yet, even with that, the Allies just ruined a tremendous number of, the Americans especially, a, a tremendous number of landing craft on the beaches due largely to inexperience. So, it's these types of lessons that are going to have to be learned if we're going to be successful throughout the, the, the rest of the campaign. The the other large lesson that's learned in in Operation Torch, this is at the highest level, this is at the the command level, is when when there's an amphibious assault, a lot of times the focus is getting on and staying on the beach and that you treat that as that's your mission. Don't get pushed off the beach. But as Eisenhower wrote uh, later on in the war, he realized that he missed uh, a key opportunity here with Operation Torch because as the Allies are landing now, it's a race to reinforce for both the Allies and for the Axis forces. So as the, the Allies are, are landing and landing troops are arriving, now the Germans have to do the same thing, so, so they're rushing to reinforce. So both sides are rushing to reinforce. But because of the cha- log challenges that we have with Torch, and you talked about this you know, austere transportation network with one uh, limited gauge railroad that actually changes gauges as you go along the different nations, there's really one major road that kind of goes along the sea. It's, your mission isn't just getting out uh, and staying on the beach, but it's attaining your operational objective, which is a seizure of, tu- of Tunis. And so how quickly can you get to Tunis? And you, know, you so you track this back to, well, we didn't bring as many trucks as we wanted because we couldn't bring as many ships as we wanted because we didn't have as many escorts and we prioritized combat forces over support forces. And therefore we were able to land on the beach, but we couldn't quite get to where we went to operationally and that situation, I won't call it a mistake because it's, again, this is operational art and is really, really hard to do right. But that, that situation that causes that now extends the war by a number of months, uh, which is going to force Eisenhower to, to take a, a bit of an operational pause and then resume operations after the rains after the there in North Africa. So those are some of the challenges. And again, many, many, uh, the good news is the Allies realize they have opportunities for improvement, and then they'll begin capitalizing on that. Uh, very quickly for the next operation.
2: Perfect. Tell us about that. How did they improve in the next operations?
1: Yeah, so as we begin looking forward, it gets, it's a bit of a challenge. So we begin planning for Operation Husky, which is the assault into Sicily, while Torch is still wrapping up. So it's still ongoing. So it isn't like you could disengage North Africa, have a, have a big conference and say, what did we learn? Make your adjustments and then get ready to go into Sicily. it's a a little bit of a parallel effort here. So it's amazing that there's as many improvements as there are. And it's not just there at the operational and the theater, but it's uh, back all the way at the industrial level as well. So probably the, you know, within the theater, uh, they start looking at how do you embark forces? Because we realized that you just, you're not gonna embark forces for Sicily, from England and from USA uh, again. So we're gonna have to embark them from uh, North Africa. So as they begin, uh, building up the theater of operations in North Africa, we have what we call base sections. And we've uh, figured out that we really can't operate independently. We need a higher level organization at, at the theater level that can watch over all the execution of what happens in the rear area, what we, we call the combat zone. So essentially we divide the, the theater of operations into two areas, the forward areas, the combat zone, and I'm sorry, the rear area is a communication zone. So it's the, it's the communication zone, the comm Z, that is the biggest room for opportunity because a lot of our doctrine deals with the forward area and not so much the rear area. So we, we make some doctrinal changes, we make organizational changes. We now have the services to supply, which comes into being uh, Major General Tom Larkin, who's a tremendous individual. He's one of the heroes of this this, uh, this effort is gonna be the SOS commander overseeing these different base sections which are operating regionally. And now the through that effort, we have the Allied force headquarters of which Eisenhower is the theater commander. They'll do the overall planning and the prioritization and then sustainment planning and execution will be left up to the SOS. So as we get ready for, for Sicily now, uh, Larkin and his base sections will begin setting up the planning for how are we going to uh, receive new divisions and then take existing divisions, refit them and get them ready to go into Sicily. They'll do all of that. And then they'll set up a series of ports with a very detailed plan to execute for how do you get the equipment to the port in the right time along with supplies. All the equipment has to be waterproofed uh, so it can survive the the voyage uh, across the, the sea and not get ruined by the salt water, which is very easy to do, uh, and get loaded in the right time and the right configuration so that it marries up with the troops uh, at the right right beaches on, on the far end. So we have a great improvement in how we see the theater, how we've organized the theater, the support planning and execution for the theater is greatly improved. It's still not perfect, but it's much, much better than it was, uh, combined with, uh, and at the industrial uh, side, we've now have a number of improvements of equipment as well, too. So new equipment is showing up on the combat uh, side. Things like bazookas are coming along, uh, which are very helpful. Uh, you don't get a lot of training on it, but you know, GIs are pretty, uh, you know, agile. They'll, they'll figure it out once they get their hands on it. Uh, the other piece of equipment that comes into play which is really helpful. A couple of them is on the landing side, so we have landing ship tanks, which are LSTs, which are great uh, vehicles, you know, ships that help carry uh, armored vehicles, tremendous numbers of people and things, and get them across uh, for amphibious landings. And that's on the larger side. And on the smaller side, we have what we call ducks, DUKWs. Uh, you'll still still see these today. They're amphibious vehicles, so they're uh, wheeled vehicles that can handle two and a half tons, but they can also have a propeller on them. So you can load load them at sea. They're not great uh, at, at going a uh, long distance, but they can certainly do short distance. So you can have this system where you don't have to have piers and keys lined up. You can do logistics over the shore with these things. So you load them up with uh, supplies or with troops, drive them up on the shore, uh, they engage the wheels, they can drive over the beach and then make, make their deposits. Uh, so it's all new equipment, it's new doctor, and it's new organizations. So Sicily ends up being an Operation Husky, uh, much, much improved over Torch. The, the other organizational change that was really key for, for Sicily, and we continued going forward, and it's gonna play a major role in Normandy, is the special beach brigades. Uh, these are engineer brigades and regiments that are really multifunctional. They're not just engineers, but they have supply, they have medics, they have signal. Now uh, there's transportation elements in there. So we've, whereas before we really didn't care about the beaches at Torch, now we really, really care about the beaches. So we've got these brigades that are going to go into Sicily, these engineer brigades and regiments. They're going to be the first logistical elements to take control of the beach and to not only receive material, but now to set up depots of, of supplies inland so we know where they're at, so that when units when come back and they need, say, I need ammunition or I need food, they know exactly where to go and they can quickly get it. So some of the major improvements that we see going into Sicily.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Those are some pretty significant improvements, um, especially because, as you said, this was all planned while other things were going on. Um, and so it's not like there was a lot of time or space to kind of do a full sit down and analysis and then come up with a whole new plan. A lot of this was constructed um, very last minute, very ad hoc. And yet, as you've just detailed, like a massive number of changes. Um But I was curious about one thing that didn't really seem to change. Um, You talked about changes in organization and doctrine and um, kind of the empowerment of different roles that previously had not been the creation um, of sort of who was in charge of different things. And yet one thing that seems consistent throughout the operations in the book, including the two that you've mentioned so far, is difficulties coordinating between uh, army and naval commands. Um, which given the importance, um, you just, as you've just mentioned, for example, of amphibious vehicles, right? A vehicle that can do both. Um, why was coordination between these two commands such a kind of sustained challenge throughout these operations, even as many other things are changing a lot and improving?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I would offer it, it was a challenge not only in the 1940s, it's a challenge even today. So it, it's it's one of these enduring challenges uh, Insights that I think the Mediterranean uh, gives us World War II in general is when you have this these types of commands that are multifunctional or, or multinational and joint in nature. You you really have to think deliberately about how you're going to synchronize your efforts. You just can't show up to the party because everybody's going to have their their own culture. Certainly, the army has its culture in the 1940s. The Navy has its culture. When you think of the Navy, its used to its approach to sustainment is its self reliant it will go to ports, the uh, German that are safe, it'll take on supplies that are needed, and then they'll often do uh, replenishment and see if they have to. So they're really not relying on anybody. Uh, but the, the Army is relying on, of course, when you're expeditionary on, on everything. So, so how do you now get the Navy and the Army of the same mindset? So it's not just taking care of the Navy, but it's taking care of the Army as well too, and uh, taking care of the Army Air Force. So the, the Air Corps is there and it's got a tremendous number of, of requirements as well, too. Now, I mentioned earlier the planning effort they had just within the Army. We, it was hard at the beginning of the war to get the planners, the operational planners and the logisticians in the same location doing their planning. It's unheard of now to get people from the different services in, into the same location trying to do planning. But to, you know, beginning with torching and then continuing through the war, you see where there's this requirement exists. I think there's an acknowledgment that it needs to happen it's, uh, it's really challenging to do, though. And they, they get better as they go through the war. I agree with you. I don't think they ever get they ever solve it where it's seamless. Uh, I would offer it's if you find a, a nation today that does, that does that very well, they're probably in a minority uh, just because of the different needs, the different systems that you have, different planning timelines, different priorities, You know all that combined in 1942 and into the early 40s with a lack of experience. And that's why you see things. Uh, you know, kind of work out the way they do.
2: Hmm. Makes sense. Um, Thank you for explaining. Uh, As we kind of go a little bit further through the book, um, I really loved how you highlight in the book the importance of kind of innovation and adaptability, right? You just mentioned it kind of the GIs didn't get a lot of training with bazookas, but once they got them, they kind of figured out what to do, right? Um, And there were a lot of those in these campaigns and unfortunately I don't think we can probably talk about all of them Um, but you highlight this idea of innovation and adaptability about not just kind of enabling success on a sort of day-to-day level or okay this time it didn't really work out but you know what we made it work anyway Um, but also for kind of creating general lessons learned um, at a higher level on a broader level um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe give us one or two other examples, um, either in the two campaigns we've mentioned, or um, kind of as we move a little bit further in the chronology. Um, any other kind of examples of innovation and adaptability, sort of helping provide learning and lessons in this sort of work?
1: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right. The, the challenge here is how do you pick pick two out of what uh, what are dozens? Uh, you know, the, the two that really stand out for me. Uh, the first, everything is really really important. I think the most important is this change of culture that we have in the army back to adaptability and innovation so in in the first world war this is where the comparison is interesting between the first and second world wars for the us in the first world war uh, general pershing who was the uh, aef commander for the americans had an approach where if you were a successful officer uh how did he reward you well if you were in the in the combat force in the infantry or or artillery for example if you were successful uh, you might get a promotion you might get a medal of some type if you were in the rear area in the services supply and you did a really, really good job, you got a promotion out of the rear area and into the combat zone, you know, uh, a transfer. That's how, he, you know, he saw this happening. Uh, conversely, if he had a, a combat arms officer who did not do well in combat, rather than send that individual back to the U.S. in disgrace, he would, might demote them, uh, but he would move them, he'd keep them in France and move them into the s- support units. So this is uh, really telling on how the American army and the senior commanders felt about sustainment and uh, the role of leadership. You wanted your uh, most effective leaders at the front, you could take risk in the rear. And that's one of the reasons why the AAF almost fails for the Americans. And, what you, and you can see this carried out in Operation Torch. So Patton's logistics officer, his G4, is uh, Colonel Mueller is his name. So when Patton lands in North Africa, he doesn't have his logistics officer with him, the guy's on the D-plus-5 convoy, which is scheduled to arrive on D-plus-5, but actually doesn't land until D-plus-11. So his, his main logistics officer, Patton, isn't there on the beach until 11 days after the initial assault. And that's part of the reason why you see all the problems that we have out of Torch. And where you see this adaption and innovation start occurring now is you see this culture change throughout the Army, uh, and including the operational theater there in, in the Mediterranean. We're starting with Sicily and continuing now into southern Italy and southern France, it's completely different. And as you see this value of you need skilled leadership everywhere, not just at the front. So we need leaders uh, on the beaches, you need them in support units, as well as in the infantry units. So now it becomes more of a holistic approach for talent management, and that continues today. Uh, Another interesting aspect of, of innovation and of adaptability I see is how the Allies dealt with infrastructure and the, the either the lack of infrastructure or rehabilitating infrastructure uh, in the mediterranean the, this it probably deserves its own book as uh, as well when uh, the germans got really really good throughout these successful campaigns of just destroying ports they would go in they would sink ships they would mine the ships they would lay them down in certain ways to make them really hard to to un- untangle they put massive underwater mines on it all, so when you went in trying to clear it you know things would blow up uh, so that, that would really limit your port usage, but uh, the Navy, in fact, for the Allies, the Navy and the Army got really, really good with engineers and with CBs and different elements to go in and start clearing these ports and putting the rail back together. And it's an amazing story on both sides. Uh, one side just trying to destroy infrastructure, the other one trying to restore it as quickly as possible. And there's some some amazing pictures that are out there of, of showing some of the ports. Uh, one of the, the scenes I came across was they came across a ship and they decided that rather than trying to recover it in the port, uh, I think it was at Naples, they uh, turned it into a pier instead. So they kind of leveraged it for, for their own use. But that, that in itself uh, en- enables not only just to get back to the, lo- the logistical effort, but the quicker you can get the port in, into play, you can increase its throughput. Now you, you're talking about added opportunities and capabilities for the combat commanders and you're taking care of the local uh, uh, population as well, too, because a lot of places we don't you know, talk about, there's there's need for food and water and hygiene and all of that. And if you can keep the populace happy, you can focus more of your attention on the combat operations. So it's just a couple of the highlights, I think, that the, the Allies do especially well at in the Mediterranean.
2: I'm glad you mentioned the uh, use of kind of creating the makeshift pier in Naples, because um, that is an incredibly evocative sort of snapshot image of this sort of innovation. Um, that was really quite incredible. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head the statistic, but it was you mentioned one of the towns they went in was something like there were I think nineteen piers or something. By the time the Allies got there, like seventeen of them had been completely blown up, um, and yet they were able to get things up and running again within a shockingly short amount of time. Um, yeah, and so yeah that that's has, a great that example that of innovation.
1: Yeah, it's not just getting the the, the port back in, in to, into into uh, play, but what we often find is. Whatever the capacity of the port was at the beginning of the war or or right before the war, the Allies are able to improve on it um, by by several fold. So you get much, much more capacity out of it, even than what you had during peacetime.
2: Um, What then kind of was the impact, right? You talked at the beginning about kind of how these lessons ended up being really helpful for things, for example, like D-Day landings in Normandy. Um, And... There's some kind of obvious ways I think that listeners will understand what those probably were from what you've already talked about. Um, but I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier in the interview about the impact on the leadership um, and how key figures, uh, Eisenhower, Montgomery, et cetera, um, kind of also were learning things from what was going on in the Mediterranean. And you talk about in the book kind of we, that we get to a point in 1944 where some of the senior Allied um, commanders and officers have had this experience in the Mediterranean, but some have obviously not. Um, kind of what happens with that? How does that sort of play out um, in terms of the sort of immediate impact on the war?
1: Yeah, the, uh, and this is one of the reasons why we, uh, and I'm just not the only one out there. There's a number of people out there. Douglas Porch is another one, uh, author, who's really argued this strenuously, is that this is a the, the crucible for learning and it's learning at all levels. But what's really important, I think, uh, most important is you take a look at the leadership, like you mentioned. So from Eisenhower on down, uh, it's as uh, part of the, the book I, I was looking at, well, who, who served in the Mediterranean and then who was serving uh, in Northwest Europe? And it's an amazing number of not just Army officers, but Navy as well too, and our Army Air Force, Air, Air Corps, uh, that have this Mediterranean experience. So you take people like Eisenhower, uh, his chief of st- staff uh, Lieutenant General Smith Beetle Smith you know all uh, the chief logistician for uh, the, the English uh, 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 Sir, Sir Hughes uh, is uh, general Hughes is the uh, ally or the, sorry the British uh, support officer coordinating things at Allied force headquarters uh, all those uh, people all move in into Northwest Europe for the planning up a shafe and now what they do is they're bringing all that experience with them. So it's, and there's, if you read some of the firsthand reports, they talk a little bit about the planning effort of Shafe and how different it was uh, pre-arrival of Eisenhower and his staff and post-arrival of Eisenhower and staff. And say so it's, it's after they these seasoned veterans get there, it really is now a much more uh, focused and deliberate planning effort than, than it was previously though it had been going on for quite some time. You know, look at the, the uh, some of the army commanders too, as well too. You know, we have uh, Omar Bradley, who's there. You have a General, Field Marshal Montgomery, who's there, all with tremendous experience that they're bringing up with them. On the support side, it carries through as well too. And we see this uh, when you compare the two senior logistics commanders uh, they are gonna be working in, in Europe. So we have John C.H. H., uh, Lee, Lieutenant General Lee, who's the uh, Services to Supply Commander, who's working under Eisenhower now for the European Theater of Operations. Uh, Lee is a bit of a controversial figure. Uh, he calls himself, uh, by his initials, uh, 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 Jesus Christ himself. Sometimes people refer to him, but uh, his, some of his superiors like him, but uh, not so much some of his peers or some of his subordinates. Uh, but even though Lee makes an a effort to go down to the Mediterranean and see what's happening and take some of those lessons back to him, he doesn't have the same experience and his staff doesn't have the same experience that Tom Larkin does coming up from the Mediterranean. And so, as uh, D-Day kicks off, we have these two lines of communication that are going to be extending down from the por- uh, down and up from the ports. So, from the Normandy ports, you have John Lee and his services of supply, and from the French southern uh, French ports of Marseille and Toulon, you have uh, Tom Larkin coming up with the southern line of communication. And it's really interesting to compare these two efforts because what we find is, as late as uh, I think it's January of 1945. The supply situation in France had gotten to the point where it was really problematic. And from the, the U.S. services supply, Lieutenant General Somerville, who's the commanding general of the SOS, flies over from Washington to France to see what the heck's going on. You know, why is this situ- situation so challenging? And what he finds is there's just problems with sorts of ammunition. They have an ineffective personnel replacement system. They're just not on the northern line of communication, not doing uh, what they should. And, and we've seen in the Mediterranean, we kind of know how things ought to be operating. So one of the and you're just not seeing that same level of challenge coming up from the southern line of communication, even though they're experiencing you know much of the same combat and the distances are are as greater and greater as what's in north northwest France. So you yeah, have one southern line of communication is doing uh, pretty well, uh, northern line of communication not so well. And so what Somerville recommends to Eisenhower is he combines the two staffs, and that's going to happen in, uh, shortly after that. And so once you get Tom Larkin and his staff now a uh, little bit co-located more than they were uh, with Lee's staff with this combining the two lines of communication, you see a lot of these logistics challenges are gonna be uh, resolved. And I think that tells uh, a lot as far as the experience levels. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know uh, writing about it and say, saying the insights, there is a certain quality to you know, you know, going through that experience and being able to share it with you know, your staffs and your supporters.
2: Yeah, I think that demonstrates it really clearly. Um, The southern line does have a much greater distance to deal with, um, and it improves when they're combined. So that's a pretty clear case and really quite interesting. Um, And so then to kind of extend that, that's a clear uh, evidence of the campaigns of the Mediterranean of North Africa and Italy impacting sort of later uh, combat within World War II. But how uh, do the campaigns of the Mediterranean Change or shape doctrine and practice after World War II, beyond World War II.
1: Yeah, and we still see this today, uh, which is really interesting for me as a, as a military logistician. Uh, and heartwarming to see some of these these insights that we've, I think we've learned. Although there's still some challenges with it. So as we go through the Second World War, of course, it's not just the Mediterranean; it's the Pacific that's out there as well, too. So we have these two uh, huge theaters, really characterized by amphibious operations. Uh, that are learning and sharing insights. Uh, in the military, the Army is, and the Navy is trying to learn these as you go along. So g- coming out of it now, and this is what we see coming into Korea, uh, later into Vietnam, and even today, I think is a awareness and understanding of the importance of what a theater is. So we, we still have to, to relearn this a little bit with some of our uh, leadership, but the theater is not just focused on the fight. It's not just focused on fighting the battle. Uh, I would argue that a, a good theater commander, a good theater structure staff understands that its role is not to fight the fight. You have subordinate commanders that are gonna do that for you. Your, your role is to th- set the theater to provide opportunities for your subordinate commanders. And by that, what I mean is that's taking care of not just the combat, getting the combat forces uh, ashore, or in place, but getting support forces there as well, you have to think of his entire system. So it's a systems thinking approach. And the system is only as good as its weakest link. So what you wanna do is, is minimize those weak links wherever they may be. And that now calls for setting conditions prior to combat if you possibly can, and continuing those through combat if it's required so that the theater now is working to give opportunities and resources to your subordinate commanders. That's one of the big changes that we see coming out of it. Uh, I think we also see the importance of a division of, of understanding of roles and relationships. So going into North Africa, the Allies were really kind of unsure about who should be doing what when it comes to support planning. So you have a theater headquarters, that's the Allied Health Force headquarters. We have the SOS headquarters, we have these base sections. Uh, the, it's easy to uh, read if you ever read about Beetle Smith, some of his challenges. There's an, an ornament about uh, amount of time spent with Eisenhower, and Smith trying to sort out all these turf battles about who's doing what. Now, what we find today, though, is we understand now that the theater army, uh, theater command, t- is there to set priorities and do overall planning. And then you really need, though, a theater logistics command that can do the execution planning and the day-to-day business and leave the theater not not to worry about that, but focus on some of the uh, the larger stuff. Uh, there's challenges not only in opening a theater, but in closing a theater. Those are lessons we continue uh, to, to carry through today. Uh, all of it has relevance. The challenge is, I think for us today is, how often have we been exercising this on a large scale? Because you really have to practice it to keep those skill sets there.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it goes back to the example you were just talking about, about Southern and nor- uh, Northern France, right? It's one thing to read reports or even write reports. It's another to. Enact it such that it becomes sort of a routine and a habit and a known um, skill, really, to exercise. Um, I'd love then to kind of ask uh, probably one of my last questions, Um, just getting a little bit more into the specifics of how these insights might be relevant today, um, and particularly with reference to Ukraine. What do you think the lessons of your book might be able to help us understand there?
1: yeah that's a great question and uh i think that is the it book came out at a great time because when you look at the news reports you see what's happening in ukraine it's it's clear that not everybody has uh has captured some of the insights that we might have out of the second world war and that might be a good thing uh at least you know for one one of the combatants there but you know i think ukraine reminds us that mechanized warfare is still a threat uh there was a a period of time there where we had to have we haven't had to worry about this you know, think about it, what a surprise the Russian invasion was of Ukraine, and how, how many people got caught, got caught by surprise, because we, many people thought that we'd never see that again, at least you know among uh, developing nations or developed nations. Uh, so this has shown us that it is, is still a threat, and that great power competition is still something that we have to consider. And we think about great power competition, we're back to, in many cases, the possibility, remote it may be, but it's there, of how do you plan for and execute, if necessary, large scale mechanized uh, modern warfare in a combined and joint environment? And that's where the lessons of the Mediterranean, I think have a, as much relevance today as it did back then. You know, it's it's one thing to to kind of talk about it, but again, back to, to, to actually put it into practice. And this is where you see, uh, especially on the Russian side. So, you know, the Russians have had to do large scale maneuvers, uh, movements with mechanized forces. Uh, our assessment, at least my own personal assessment, uh, talking to a few people, is they, the Russians probably haven't as put as much priority or emphasis on their support forces as they have on their combat forces. Sounds a little bit like the US in the First World War. Now, they probably haven't put as high a priority on purchasing quality repair parts uh, for their tanks and mechanized vehicles. And that certainly has played out. And they haven't purchased or, or bought enough, fielded enough back to organization and doctrine. You know what do the support organizations look like because they're having challenges sustaining themselves. Flip it over. The Ukrainians have gotten really good at targeting Russian logistics. So I think that all of that has insights uh, for us today. And when you look back, it's some of the same problems that Eisenhower and Rommel and Hitler and all the all the group was facing back there in the 1940s.
2: I think there are some clear parallels there. Um, So hopefully that means that, I mean, I don't know really if people are going to be reading new books um, in a war zone, Um, but for those of us who are lucky enough to not be in the middle of a war zone, um, that's a very clear argument for why your book uh, is both historical and yet incredibly relevant uh, to events unfolding today. But from our point of view, there's still some clear learning to be done, um, for example, by reading the book. But you have written the book and it is done and is available. So what are you working on now or next?
1: Well, I think it goes back to our earlier question is that the, uh, the threat of great power competition remains out there. And there. I'm not sure we've reminded ourselves of all of the, the lessons from there. So I think I may be interested in going back uh, through history and taking a look and see if I can uh, put together a volume that really does look at great power competition and the, specifically the logistical implications for how do you field and support and maintain that kind of force, and then tie that into, okay, so what does that mean for us today? Because I think the, the new world order today is quite different from what it was uh, you know, just a few months ago.
2: Well, I think that uh, you've already shown the ability to uh, investigate history and create useful lessons purely from a historical perspective but also link them out. So I'm sure there's probably a lot more you can do with that kind of um, investigation. Uh, But while you are off exploring that, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled War of Supply, World War II Allied Logistics in the Mediterranean, published by University Press of Kentucky uh, 2022. Um, Dr. Dave Dorak, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much.